Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. The Amiga seemed to be kicking in and literally one day my son turned around to me and he said, you know, mom, I feel happy. And I was like, wow, you know, and he was noticeably happy and noticeably calmer. And a lot of family and friends had also made comments to that effect. I'm not saying there was any dramatic, radical changes. Of course, his attention was still impaired, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that wasn't going to go away. But the fact was that changing his diet had resulted in changes in his behavior and mood. And that's where it all began. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Research highlights a crucial link between nutrition, ADHD, and brain health. And there is some evidence, although not fantastic quality evidence, but some nonetheless, that indicates smart food choices for ADHD and brain health disorders and data on supplementation, which can influence cognitive function. On the show, we have Dr. Rachel Gao, PhD, who is both a nutrition professional and experienced researcher, plus a parent of a child with ADHD who has the experience of being in the position of not knowing what to do to help their child. ADHD affects one in 20 children, 500,000 in the UK, and roughly one in every classroom. And there are some incredible well-known figures in business, the arts and dance who are diagnosed with ADHD, but there is also a darker side to their condition that doesn't get as much airtime. And this is something that we should be mindful of and something that we discuss on the show today. Dr. Rachel is a London-based psychologist specializing in child and adult mental health and has specific expertise in ADHD, autism, depression, anxiety, 
and related learning and behavior conditions. In addition, Dr. Gao is a registered nutritionist and has a master's of science in psychological research methods. She has published approximately 22 peer-reviewed book chapters and scientific papers. And her first book, Smart Foods for ADHD and Mental Health, is being published in February 2021. Her nonprofit is nutritiousminds.org and private clinic is nutritiousmindsconsulting.com. Dr. Gao frequently lectures at London Met University, the University of Surrey, which is where I met her on my master's in uh, nutritional medicine, and also has an honorary role at the Institute of Psychiatry, King's College London. She is very well established in the field of both not only research methodology, but also the research itself on looking at nutritional psychiatry. And she's a firm believer in the pragmatic wider application of food in these kinds of conditions that don't get enough attention at the moment. So on the show today, we talk about Rachel's personal story with her child's development, omega-3 fatty acids. We spend a, a bit of time talking about that and why they are critical for the brain and its function. We also talk about clinical trials, looking at supplementation, the impact of the gut on serotonin, dopamine, neurogenesis, and brain inflammation, as well as the utility potentially for omega-3 and depression and ADHD. I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast episode. We talk a lot about some studies. I put some links on the doctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast. So if you are interested in those studies, then do check those out and do check out the nonprofit that Rachel has uh, as well. On to the podcast. How's your lunch? <laughs> My lunch was delicious. Thank you ever so much. Yeah, it was really awesome. I can't take credit for it because uh, it was a, no, it was a mob kitchen's <laughs> recipe. Yeah. Uh, I, I did it was the tahini with courgettes and yeah, yeah speedy recipe. Listen to it, it's a very good recipe. Uh, I must say, but I can't take credit for it. But I'm you glad you enjoyed it. it. You can. <laughs> it was lovely. Yeah, thank you very, very much. Very flavoursome. Appreciate it. And nourishing. <laughs> and nourishing. And healthy. Yeah. Well, add a few lentils to it. So yeah. I've beefed up the fiber content. Yeah, it was yeah. really great. Which I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about in a bit. Um, <laughs> so, Rachel, I, th I thought the way to start would be um, maybe talk about how, you know, you got started in nutrition sure. itself. Um, yeah. We met uh, very briefly at the end of your lecture yes. in my nutrition medicine master at University of Surrey. I was enamored by your talk. It was brilliant. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for you coming here. But, yeah, why, why don't you pleasure. introduce us to how you got started? Yeah, absolutely. It's a long story. So do you want the long or the short version? Oh, we've got time. <laughs> we've got time. Yeah. So there are multiple versions of that story. I'll try and keep it as uh, short and succinct as I can. Um, but for me, really, it all started out when I was a, a young first time mom, uh, working mom. I worked in property in St. John's Wood on the very famous Abbey Road. Um, I absolutely loved my job and my son went to a, a small private school on Abercorn Place around the corner from my work, which was very convenient. And um, as the kind of weeks and months went by, I started to get complaints from the teachers complaining about low level disruptive behavior, just things like he wasn't sitting still, he was getting up out of his chair, he was uh, blurting out the answers, not raising his hand and all of this was causing disruption for the teachers and for the class as a whole. And um, it went on and on. And that basically 
forced me to seek out help and start my own investigations as to what was going on with my son developmentally because a lot of his behavior was age inappropriate, you know, so the other little boys weren't acting quite as boisterously as him or, you know, they were able to conform and when they were reprimanded in the class, they, um, you know, would comply. Whereas my son would be told not to do something and he'd be very remorseful, but 10 minutes later, he'd be repeating the same behavior and it would drive everyone wild. And he was constantly getting told off and this was affecting his self-esteem. And obviously it was disrupting my work as well, because oftentimes they would say, you know, come and get him, come and pick him up. And that would be the end of my working day. Um, so it was really, really tough. And I... I really felt like I was banging my head against a brick wall. Um, it was like everywhere I turned, there wasn't really much help out there. And this is going back, you know, over two decades ago. So it was quite a, quite a while ago, but um, eventually I sought out help from various professionals, from education psychologists to uh, clinical psychologists to child and adolescent psychiatrists. He had four years psychotherapy, which did absolutely nothing. Um, because what we didn't know is that what in fact he did have was a, a biological condition that affected his brain. Um, subtle differences in the wiring of his brain, which gave rise to these behavior differences. Um, he was diagnosed um, by uh, an amazing psychiatrist, Dr. Richard Soppet, who um, confirmed he had ADHD. And that really, uh, was the catalyst for me to then, you know, move forward with that diagnostic label. Like, what do I do with this diagnostic label? I didn't know anything about it, oh my goodness, you know? And um, how can I, you know, seek help? Um, and we, again, tried everything from methothenidate, um, which in the short term helped, but had quite serious side effects for my son personally that, we, which made us stop because he wasn't sleeping and he wasn't eating and his emotions all over the place. Just, just for the listener, yeah. what is methadone? Uh, oh, sorry. So it's like a psychostimulant medication. Um, it's normally the first line of treatment for ADHD and it can be very effective. It can really ma make all the difference for a lot of parents. Um, but in our case, although he was better able to concentrate and focus and pay attention, he, his emotions were all over the place. So he'd be like, like literally crying hysterically to uncontrollable laughter and he wasn't eating and he wasn't sleeping. And that was an issue because back then he was at boarding school and, um, you know, staff couldn't go off duty at nighttime until everyone was asleep. And of course he couldn't sleep. He was like wired till like 2 a.m. And, and then that caused problems because we were faced with another dilemma, which was to remove him from school unless he could successfully take the medication yeah so and how long after yeah. you know you discovered there was an issue at school till you had a, a firm diagnosis yeah so basically when he was diagnosed um the reason we were forced to actually get the diagnosis um made official was because the school he was at had literally said to us, unless he's medicated, he can't come back. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we were faced with a huge dilemma. Oh, wow. It was Medicaid or mm. not be educated at that particular establishment. And it was a well-known school um, who specialized in ADHD and dyslexia because um, this was somewhere down the line. Gotcha. You know, he's yeah, yeah. a bit older now. 
Um, so yeah, so that's what we did, but medication didn't work and he actually did, we did have to remove him from that school. Um, and following that, I decided to give up my career in property altogether. In fact, a little before or around the time he was diagnosed, I just knew it would never work. And, um, we took some time out to reflect. Uh, we actually went off to the South of France. I took him out of school a little bit early. <laughs> it wasn't working out anyway, yeah. apologies. <laughs> um, and we went off and spent a marvelous three months in the South of France. And that I put my thinking cap on. I was like, look, you know, our lives are so disrupted. Like, what are we going to do? I need to start again. I need to reassess, realign. And that's when I decided to go to uni. Um, so I was fortunate that they allowed or permitted me entry under the remit of being a mature student because I hadn't done, gone down the conventional academic route. When I left school, I'd gone straight into the property world because I wanted to, you know, um, basically, you know, buy my own property. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Um, it would have been a really son. good career, like lucrative career. It was an amazing start, career. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I bought my first place at 25 and yeah, I had, it was, it was great. I met wonderful people from all over the world I mean you know I wasn't just stuck in an office I was mm. out and about all day I loved that and I'm a very sociable person so it was great for me but I gave it all up and I got into uni um, and I did a undergraduate degree in a bachelor of science in psychology and then that led me to a master of science in psychological research methods so mainly kind of statistics critique of clinical trial that you know trials that kind of thing mm. and then that led to a PhD at um, the Institute of Psychiatry in fact the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at King's College London I was there for four years one day um, just before I was about to finish my PhD I got a call from a, um, a scientist in America inviting me to come and do a postdoctoral research fellow role in the section of nutritional neuroscience at um, the Institutes of Health in uh, National Institutes of Health, uh, sorry, NIH in yeah. Bethesda, Maryland. What, um, what issue was that? Because that that seems really before its time. Like now, nutritional psychiatry is this new sexy term, but yeah. that's that's really ahead ahead of the game. Yeah. So I went there in uh, 2012. Oh, wow. Okay. For four years till came home in 2016. Yeah. Epic. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So really my, my experience as a mom with my son, so the personal experience led me to the professional experience. Um, and certainly my son was the driving force behind um, my changing career and decide to kind of research, you know, this neurodevelopmental difference because I knew nothing about it and I was struggling. Uh, I had nowhere really to turn and I knew that other parents out there must be going through the same thing. And there must be more than just methothenidate, surely. You know, what else is out there? What else can help? And by understanding the brain um, and understanding, you know, which I'm sure we'll come to, the nutritional composition of the brain, you know, and um, the importance of what we refer to as brain selective nutrients to optimize both the structure and the function of our brain and its cells and its, you know, uh, neuronal membranes. Um, that really enabled me to also help my son. Um, one of the first things um, I tried with my son when Ritalin didn't work 
um, or methothenidate, but I'm not allowed to use the trade name. Um, <laughs> Everyone calls it the trade names, even <laughs> okay. here in the NHS. Fair yeah. enough. Um, was omega-3 fatty acids. Um, and it was quite by chance, uh, a family friend who'd gone to uni with my brother was working for a nutraceutical company at the time. And she just phoned me up. She heard that I'd really been struggling with my son. She was like, hey, have you heard of omega-3? And I was like, no, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and um, she said, I'll send you some supplements. Why don't you try them out? And I was a little bit skeptical. I was like, you know, what on earth a little yeah. fish oil pill is going to do, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever. But hey-ho, I was desperate. I'll try anything. Yeah. And uh, so we took them... We, we followed the instructions on the box. And after six weeks, she called me up and she was like hey, how's it going? And I was like, well, to be honest, nothing. I can't see any difference at all. You know, there's no noticeable difference. And she was like, look, there's some research that's just come out of the States showing um, that children and young adults of ADHD have very low levels of omega-3 in their blood. And perhaps if you increase the dose, because you may in fact be trying to correct a nutritional insufficiency and one that takes longer because we know it takes around six weeks to physiologically alter the red blood cell composition of omega-3. Um, so she was like, try increasing the dose like to like one gram plus a day. And I was like, are there any side effects? You know, what's going to happen? She's like, not really. Maybe like sometimes they can repeat on you. Sometimes you can get like loose stools or something like that, but it should be fine. Just monitor, you know, any changes. And so I was like, okay. So we upped the dose and um, we carried on. And I also changed his diet around the same time. So I cut out sugar, I cut out processed foods. I started making meals from scratch, which was alien to me because I'd been a very, very busy working mom, you know? And so I went back to basics, got back in the kitchen, you know, I'd give him salmon and he took his supplements. He also took multivitamins. What, what were his eating habits prior to the change well, in diet? Well, hands up, you know, I'm guilty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was literally always, you know, food on the go. Yeah. You know? And yeah. even sometimes on the way home from work, we would eat out because yeah. I'd be exhausted, you know, and I'd be like, I don't even want to go home and cook, you know. Let's, to, to, I mean, my yeah. mum, like, she's an amazing cook. Yeah. I, I grew up with her cooking uh, home cooked meals all the time. Yeah. But, you know, she was a working mum. She yeah. was working in the city. Yeah. You know, and we had grab and go meals all the time. And especially back in the day, you know, it was the fashionable thing to yeah. do. And yeah. it wasn't seen as unhealthy yeah. or whatever. It was just like, why wouldn't you do that? Because it is time saving and, it, you know, you're feeding your kids. Um, and they're happy and they love it. So why not? So yeah, yeah don't, don't feel guilty. <laughs> it was the era of the microwave meal. Totally, Yuck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah, that's not to say we did that all the time, but yeah, that certainly took place. And I, you know, lunch boxes were, you know, a packet of crisps, a chocolate mini well, you know, a ham or cheese sandwich or something like that. Absolutely gross. You know, I couldn't think of anything worse now, but yeah. So, so we went back to basics, got back in the kitchen. I educated myself on, you know, different types of foods and the Amiga seemed to be kicking in and literally one day my son turned around to me and he said, you know, mom, I feel happy. And I was like, wow, you know, and he was noticeably happy and noticeably calmer. And a lot of family and friends had also made comments to that effect. I'm not saying there was any 
dramatic radical changes of course his attention was still impaired etc etc you know that wasn't going to go away but the fact was that changing his diet had resulted in changes in his behavior and mood and that's where it all began it's such a powerful story and i think like so many people will resonate with that as well not only with you know um parents who have gone through a similar journey but also parents who don't know where to start as well and it sounds like you know what you were doing at the start mirrors a lot uh, you know with my own personal story and with a lot of other people's stories of you're just trying little experiments here and there because there wasn't that much information there wasn't that much general knowledge the internet wasn't rife with both misinformation but also good quality information as well so i think you know that is I mean, it, it really does resonate a lot. And I think it's it's really honest as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I would go to my GP and talk about my child's behavior, um, the question, you know, what does he eat or what do you feed him was, you know, never arose. And, and why would it? Because as we know, you know, the BBC very bravely published an article a couple of years ago saying that medical students are only getting around two hours training on nutrition, Um, And I think the UK as a whole are a little bit, although we're getting much better, um, there's been huge, you know, shifts in in the ways that people approach food now. But food to me really is medicine and food doesn't just have an effect on our physical health. Because when we speak about food, it's often dressed from the neck down in terms of its preventative role in disease you know diseases such as the premature development of cancer or type 2 diabetes or obesity or stroke or cardiovascular disease you know that's what's more commonly known but when we talk about the role of food to the brain then that's just such a murky you know we're we're treading in murky waters because people are like hey what really what you eat affects your brain yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) but it does at molecular and cellular levels and for example when my son said to me I feel happy mum now I know sort of 14 years down the line why he was able to communicate that to me because of the mechanistic action of omega-3 highly unsaturated fatty acids in the regulation of dopamine and both the dopaminergic and serotonergic systems in our brain rely on omega-3 fats. And, um, you know, now I understand the nutritional composition of the brain, you know, that it's the fattest organ in our body, that it comprises, well, at least 65% of the dry weight of the adult brain and retina is made up of these specialized, complex, unique fats called lipids. I didn't know that. And that around 20 to 25% of our brain is um, made up of docosahexaenoic acid or DHA. So yeah, I mean, it's estimated we have, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but in the region of about 100 billion neurons in our brain, and each of those neurons is coated in a myelin sheath, which is made up of DHA. And what that does is it speeds up cell signaling across the brain's networks to make faster and more efficient communication. Um, And people like Professor John Stein, who's a neuroscientist, brother of celebrity seafood chef Rick Stein. (laughs) (laughs) He specializes in dyslexia and in particular, I won't go into any details, but magno and parvular cells 
in the role of dyslexia. And he, some of his work has shown that insufficient amounts of omega-3 um, alters these cells um, and an omega-3 insufficiency can slow down cell signaling by up to around 30%. So if you think about that in a translational sense and you think about children in a class and a teacher's asking a question and then you have one child who has hypothetically adequate omega-3 who's able to you know, fully um, compute the answer, understand the question, you know, hand up, ready to deliver the answer versus someone who's still trying to figure out what the question was. I mean, that's potentially the difference, yeah. that 30% difference, up to 30% difference, yeah. I mean, it's incredible when you think about it like that. And, yeah. I, and I like the, you know, the approach of, you know, the translation of that into what actually plays out in a classroom yeah. with someone who's light years ahead. And I think, you know, who knows what the omega-3 levels are like across the board when it comes to children. Well, we know, yeah, <laughs> the research has been done. So an amazing lady and good friend of mine, Dr. Alex Richardson at the University of Oxford has been doing these clinical trials in children who are underachieving in mainstream schools. Okay. And she did a study called the DOLAB study where she measured the omega-3 index of UK school children. And she found a mean, which means average, you know, just the average score of around 2.4. Um, so I'm going to just take you through the index. So the suboptimal levels are between 0 and 4%. Then you have the intermediate range, which is between 4 to 8%. And then you have the optimal range between 8 to 12%. Now, this omega-3 index was developed by someone called Clements von Scharke, and it's a reliable and robust predictor of the risk of the development of cardiovascular disease. But increasingly, over the last decade, researchers in the field of nutritional psychiatry have been looking at this index in relation to the risk of psychiatric disease. Um, because we know that if you eat... Uh, a diet lacking in omega-3 and rich in omega-6, for example, it can switch on inflammatory markers in your brain. And there is this kind of general consensus that underlying um, a lot of psychiatric illness is inflammation in the brain, in the body and brain. So inflammation can be a trigger and is implicated in psychiatric illness. So looking at the omega-3 indexes, um, in terms of psychiatric help, it's not conclusive by any means. It's been looked at as a marker. So let's have a look and see how this correlates. And of course, correlation does not imply causation ever. But increasingly, a lot of clinical trial research is showing in ADHD, um, omega-3 indexes of four or below. And in my clinical trial at the NIH, our adults of ADHD if I remember correctly, um, was just over four. So it's like 4.1. So still really within Low, that yeah. suboptimal mm. range. But the great news is we can correct that. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> we can yeah. incorporate fish into our diet and we can eat, as the government um, recommends, at least, you know, two portions of oily fish per week. You know, salmon, wild Alaskan salmon, trout, you know, lots of seafood. And we can correct that and we can test for our omega-3 index. And if children have ADHD like my son did and they don't eat fish, because initially he, he really didn't like fish, 
um, then supplements are a good way to start, you know, by making sure they get their omegas. The index that was used in the Dolab study um, demonstrating that mean, which is super shocking. Yeah, super shocking. Yeah, that's really disconcerting, actually. It's worrying that children don't like to eat fish. No, no. (laughs) yeah. How can we convince them? (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on it. Yeah, Um, you've got to. But uh, has a similar study been done across psychiatric uh, units, perhaps? Maybe inpatient units or anything like that? No, and that's a shame. Um, at one stage, I was, uh, in fact, I did design a clinical trial, but here in the UK, it's so hard to get funding, and especially for nutritional studies, because unfortunately, as we discussed earlier, you know, it's the disease model of medical kind of management in terms of symptoms, and it's like oftentimes pharmaceuticals get the funding, whereas you know, nutritional research doesn't, and that's a big shame. And also, it is problematic because. Oftentimes, nutrients work in synergy. They don't work in isolation. So, for example, if you did decide to do a clinical trial supplementing children with like a one gram fish oil capsule, for example, it's not necessarily going to work. And there are many, many reasons for that. One, because most don't test prior to supplementation. So they don't look at the omega-3 index. You know, like what happened with my son you know, it didn't work in the in the first six weeks. And that's probably because he was insufficient. So if one, you might have to correct an insufficiency with a larger dose or a longer duration of dose. Secondly, the type of formula is really important because there are so many different types of omega-3 fatty acids and people often get these confused. They're like three, six and nine or seven or what do they all mean? You know, just grab, you know, anything in Holland and Barrow, you know, it says omega-3, that'll do. And it's not like that at all. And our neuroscientific research has shown that really the two key highly unsaturated fatty acids that the brain needs are eco-serpentinoic acid, EPA, and as I mentioned earlier, DHA. And these are really critical for the growth and formation of our neurons, you know, process referred to as neurogenesis, and also for so many other Uh, significant biological functions throughout the central nervous system you know not only in governing our mood um, but there's a a wealth of experimental uh, laboratory literature showing that depleting for example lab rats um, of omega-3 results in a 40 to 60 percent depletion in dopamine in the frontal cortex and nucleus accumbens and I think and, you know, that's been replicated time and time and time and time again. You know, the, the research is there showing. Um, and in particular, a lot of this work has been done by He Yong Kim at the NIH. And she's shown that if you take hippocampal neurons and you put them in a cell culture and you deprive them of omega-3, that results in something called neurite outgrowth. So, uh, significantly inhibited neurite outgrowth, which just means the dendrites on the neurons are just not in that nice, healthy tree-like pattern that they should be in order to make the connections um, in the brain to help with communication. And when you put the omega-3 back into the cell-cultured hippocampal neurons, um, it restores that neurite outgrowth. So we know that we can modulate our brains, which is a really exciting concept. We're not necessarily stuck with the brains that we have and we can change them to optimize in terms of 
of function at molecular and cellular levels. Yeah, I mean, that for me, I think, and hopefully for the listeners as well, will be really comforting to know that yeah. there are lots of things that we can do mm-hmm. at a later age mm-hmm. to improve the function of our yeah. brains. One thing, and to, to essentially re-emphasize your point of not conflating the association with causation. Yes, of course. But with the, the DOLAB study that demonstrated that association, uh, apart from the the few studies that you've mentioned uh, about, you know, um, the impact on low omega-3 levels yeah. and processing speed or um, the lab rat studies, yeah. has there been any uh, empirical evidence about how yes. we can replace and improve that index yes. of omega-3 with improved outcomes? Yeah, so absolutely. So just to go back to the DOLAB study, um, first of all, they found that that actually was the omega-3 index score um, collectively. Um, then they correlated it to different kind of uh, literacy outcomes. But the same lady, Dr. Richardson, has also done clinical trials. There was the Oxford-Durham trial some years ago, which was kind of a bit of a landmark study here in the UK, where she supplemented underachieving school children who also had symptoms of uh, developmental coordination disorder, also known as DCD um, or dyspraxia. And um, it was a six-month crossover study, uh, randomized, you know, so half the children had a placebo for the first three months and then half had omega-3 supplements. And then the placebo group was crossed over to the active omega-3 supplementation group for the duration of the study. And then it's three months, she found significant improvements in the children taking the omega-3 supplements in literacy, Uh, particularly in reading and spelling the gains were quite significant between three and six months and then this continued towards the end of the trial and then in addition to that there was also improvement on all the Connor scales um, in terms of their ADHD symptoms as well so in terms of their behavioral profiles were improved as well and there have been many many studies um, replicating this as well that has resulted in several meta-analyses um, and systematic reviews of the literature. And in relation to omega-3, the strongest effects have been found for ADHD and clinical depression in terms of reducing symptoms. Um, it's a small to modest effect size. And I personally have looked at those meta-analyses as well. And in some instances, they've included trials that supplemented with kind of, in my mind, quite dubious formulas. So I think we've still got room for improvement, but if the clinical literature, I think there's like maybe even five meta-analyses now showing this effect size for omega-3. So we can't dismiss the science. It might be small, but there are other, you know, SSRI antidepressant medication with similar effect size, um, yet they're being prescribed people with depression. But you know, I'd like us to be at a place um, where when someone presents themselves with some type of mental health struggle, whether it's depression or anxiety or whatever, ADHD, that they are simultaneously referred to a dietitian or nutritionist for a full blood screening of their nutrient levels because we know, you know, deficits in vitamin D and B vitamins, in omega-3 fats, in all sorts of um, trace elements can uh, have uh, or play a role in um, these conditions. So correcting any insufficiencies, looking at the gut, the gut health, 
what's going on there it's our second brain yeah, yeah. serotonin <laughs> is made in the gut and serotonin and dopamine i should just clarify like serotonin is the hormone uh neurotransmitter that we um need for feelings of well-being and happiness whereas dopamine is um associated with reward and pleasure and um hence why it can become addictive because you know humans are kind of hardwired to seek pleasure and avoid pain and oftentimes they'll do anything to get that hit of dopamine whether and that's why they can you know become addicted to harmful substances like alcohol or nicotine or marijuana cocaine even social media you know sex whatever you know food food's number one junk food because it releases dopamine they're like hey this feels good i want some more you know one of the things i want to come back to is the fact that so you had this personal experience with your son you saw some impact with diet and supplementation um, and then you went and did uh, qu quite an important part of your journey, which is learning how to interpret studies and actually look at the statistics, which is something that you've clearly demonstrated in this short time we've been speaking and during your lecture as well. That gave you the tools to come at these studies with a rigorous scientific approach as well. Were there any um, elements of your training during that time, which kind of made you a bit disheartened about nutrition as a science in general? This is more of a general question because I think to, to the points about your, um, that you were just making about meta-analyses and how the uh, number of them is quite low, the heterogeneity is likely to be high. We don't use the same omega-3 doses in the studies. It's really frustrating when they use really low doses. Um, and it's something we see time and time again in nutrition. Um, how has that changed, if anything, at all of the of your career, and and what do you see the way forward? Yeah, that's a really good point, and thanks for raising it because it's an important one. Um, it is disheartening um, that nutrition isn't taken as seriously as it should be in my mind, and especially in mental health, which is my personal area of expertise. Um, hence, why I was very keen to take up this postdoc at the NIH because. For those that don't know, the National Institutes of Health is one of the largest and arguably leading biomedical research agencies in the world. Um, they engage in what's called high-risk novel cutting-edge research, and ultimately they save lives. And the wonderful thing about conducting any research at the NIH is that you get to design your own trial, <laughs> and that's super exciting um, for someone like me. Um, and also because at King's College, I'd worked with children and adolescents with ADHD and compared them to healthy controls in terms of their brain activity using electrophysiological recordings of brain activity. In other words, EEG, where they wear this like swimming cap with all these electrodes and we look at um, some of their cognitive and emotional responses. Um, and I looked at that in relation to omega-3. So going to the NIH suddenly meant that I could now transition from children and teenagers into adults. And that was something I really wanted to do. And this time I went a step further in terms of neuroimaging and I looked at what's known as functional and structural MRI. So we wanted to conduct this um, neuroimaging trial, um, a supplementation trial, giving adults of ADHD omega-3 and literally upping the dose to FDA, within FDA safe levels, which is three grams. 
and seeing uh, what effects it had in brain activity pre and post supplementation. Um, it was extremely difficult to recruit adults of ADHD in Washington, D.C., because many of them were all on a, a cocktail of prescription medication. And for in order to use MRI, it wouldn't be ethical or safe necessarily to ask them to withdraw. Um, and that was really tough because oftentimes adults of ADHD, you know, the core symptoms are kind of just disorganization and um, procrastination. They're highly distractible. They can suffer with interpersonal relationships. Um, they often are very creative, have all these projects going on, but trouble with follow through and they tend to self-medicate. And as a result, they have all these overlapping features of depression, anxiety, maybe OCD, whatever. So what happens then is when they're treated medically, they're given, you know, for example, an antidepressant um, plus something for their anxiety. So they might be on Soloft, fluoxetine, Lexapro, like you name it. And it's very hard to do neuroimaging research when you're on so many different medications. So we really struggled to get the numbers. So the trial did lack statistical power, um, but it did provide really interesting insights and resulted in significant, some small but significant differences in uh, brain activation in those taking the omega-3 where there were no changes in the placebo. And in particular, we found um, some effects in, in the anterior cingulate cortex and the insula and areas of the brain associated mainly with attention and emotion network. So that was really interesting. We we're about to publish this. And I I'm hoping and praying that it can be a stepping stone for other neuroscientists to think, let me explore this further. You know, we were very fortunate to have the funding in order to conduct the clinical trial. And I do recommend other postdocs consider, you know, leaving, you know, their comfort zone and, and maybe going abroad, you know, and, and seeing what else is out there, seeing what opportunities are out there, because that opportunity would never have been granted to me had I stayed in the UK, sadly to say that. But to answer your original question, nutritional research and nutritional psychiatry is not getting the funding it deserves. I mean, it's very hard to do a randomized placebo control controlled trial with food I mean how what is a placebo for a salmon I don't know but then it's like you know we have to be a little bit rational sometimes because the same way you wouldn't do a randomized placebo controlled trial of a parachute would you because no. I wouldn't want the placebo parachute you know when it comes to nutrition they don't work in isolation anyway they all act in synergy with each other so when you eat a piece of fish for example you don't just get the omega-3s you need for your brain to function but you also get all the trace elements so you get you know iron iodine magnesium selenium you know the b vitamins and these all work together to um make our brain work as the, it should yeah this is what i talk about so much on yeah. the pod you know it's the orchestra of different uh, ingredients that you find within a whole food that have the demonstrable effect it's not just the isolated you know, um, element, whether it be a Absolutely. phytonutrient or fat or, yeah. you know, a micronutrient like vitamin or mineral. So, uh, yeah, and this is the unfortunate issue yes. with doing research on these yeah. items because they're just so complicated themselves. Yeah. Um, 
And I think, you know, it, it, it's interesting um, because going back to your original point about how perhaps we should approach um, psychiatry in its instance should be, okay, first let's isolate something that's cost-effective to treat by assessing and screening for nutritional deficits that we know are rife, especially given the Dolab study, looking at kids, for example, as, a, as an, a, you know, it's just one point. Um, and let's try and correct that prior to investing um, a lot of money and a lot of energy and and quite frankly, potential for adverse side effects with yes. pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Um, it's hard to make that point in our current environment yes. where as a general practitioner, you know, we have eight minutes and we're not nutritionally trained. Yes. Uh, and we don't have the, you know, the capacity or the tools to assess yeah. omega-3 status in our, yes. in our patients that come yes. see us. Yeah, it's really tough, I know. Yeah. And a lot of this work is private, mm. which is really sad in a sense because everyone deserves to have access, you know, to this knowledge information and any potential interventions as well you know because as a parent I really struggled and that's why in 2017 I set up a non-profit called Nutritious Minds which um, the aim was you know to cover the cost of um, diagnostic services to parents you know low-income parents who couldn't even afford to get their child privately diagnosed and who weren't able to access um, CAMS because the waiting list was over a year. Meanwhile, the child is at risk of educational failure and permanent exclusion. So it's like, what do we do with these? How can we bridge this gap? Because a lot of parents would come to me and they'd be waiting a year plus for their child to be diagnosed with autism. So I thought Nutritious Minds, you know, which it has been uh, successfully able to help parents on a number of levels and it's resulted in several diagnoses and I'm hoping to grow that in the future so that we can go into schools and teach children about the importance of nutrition and what their brain is made of because that's another big gap we have as well you know and it's my favorite question to ask to children when I go into schools like I'm like hey what's your brain made of and <laughs> everyone looks at me really strangely but no one really gives me the answer and I think it's really important because, you know, kids are taught about the body and, you know, the, the skeleton and, you know, how we need air um, so that our lungs can breathe and that our blood, you know, our blood pumps, uh, our, sorry, our heart pumps blood around the body that keeps us alive. But, you know, they're not talking, uh, they're not taught anything about the inner workings of the human brain. Mm. And, you know, I'd hazard a guess that the average 12 year old wouldn't even know what the functional location of the cerebellum was, for example, you know? <laughs> so we need to educate people about the brain. I think yeah. that's really important. Definitely. I, I think there, there's so much there as well, particularly in a post-pandemic world where mental health is becoming a lot more sort of prominent. Um, I mean, I and my a &E colleagues are quite worried about this tidal wave of mental health issues that's going to land on the doors of not just primary and secondary care, but A&E for sure. And we're already seeing that now. So it's almost like we need to have a strategy where we can engage in self-help, but also responsibly treat where needed with the harder interventions that we already have. I wanted to go back to, um, so uh, your experience with NIH, you did your postdoctorate, which is incredible. Um, what are the, we've talked a lot about omega-3 as well, I think, which is great. And the foundation of healthy foods, minimizing sugar, 
the gut microbiota, which you mentioned as being the sort of powerhouse of this factory of a number of different neurotransmitters, serotonin being one of the largest ones, something that can have both direct and indirect impacts on the brain. Um, when did you first start learning about the impact of the microbiota and, and what kind of strategies do we have in terms of uh, improving that population for the purposes of uh, perhaps even uh, ameliorating or even treating uh, ADHD and, and other uh, developmental disorders? So um, I guess it was probably around a decade ago I started learning about the gut and, you know, it, the gut is commonly referred to now as the second brain and most people have heard of the gut brain axis as a terminology but yeah understanding what that means is something else and you know our gut is an ecosystem of uh, healthy and unhealthy bacteria to put it simply um and some time ago there was a discovery of the vagus nerve and then we realized that serotonin wasn't being made in the brain predominantly as we thought and it was actually being made in the gut and then it was being transported via the vagus nerve bypassing the blood brain barrier directly into the brain and this was like wow you know the whole field of nutritional psychiatry among others were like what is going on this is so exciting and it led to pockets of research you know out in california like uc davis and a whole bunch of researchers in cork um in ireland um who are really kind of pioneers in this field and uh, and we're, we're finding out so much more in fact i've written a whole chapter on this in my book in relation to children with uh, autism and adhd because what i started finding in my private practice was um a hundred percent of the children that came to me with diagnostic labels of anxiety adhd autism all presented with a, a range of what uh, food intolerances and food allergies and oftentimes the main culprits were you know gluten wheat uh, and dairy so it's like what's going on here and then in the same breath their parents would be like oh they're such picky eaters, you know, they're such problematic, you know, eaters and mealtimes are a nightmare and I don't know what to do. And all they want to eat is the, what I call the white or beige foods. So they want white rice, white potatoes, you know, white bread, or they want, you know, beige foods like chicken nuggets and, and they don't want anything touching and it all has to be separate. And sometimes it has to be in separate bowls and and so, you know, these parents were like crying out for help. And so I, one of my recommendations is to always um, investigate. If you're, if you, do, you know, you need to go beyond behavioral symptoms. You need to look at blood. You need to have stool tests, especially in terms of gut microbiota. Because um, we know and increasing research has shown that um, children with ADHD, and ASD um, have these problematic eating behaviors and uh, simultaneously present with these food intolerances and food allergies. And it's almost like they're providing their gut bacteria with the fodder for them to, you know, uh, multiply and and grow and then what happens is when the unhealthy bacteria outweigh the healthy bacteria, you can end up with something called leaky gut um, syndrome 
which again has all sorts of implications for a child's behavior um, and mood. And we know that the health of the gut is uh, critical for all sorts, a wide range of complex functions, including even sleep, you know. Um, and that an unhealthy gut uh, results in, you know, behavior disturbances, emotional meltdowns, irritability, anxiety, and so much more. So improving the health of the gut, which you can do quite simply with, you know, pre and probiotics and also avoiding white refined sugar and processed foods and by feeding um, your child nourishing bone broths, um, which are rich in collagen, which can help repair the lining of the intestine um, as well. Um, because when you have leaky gut syndrome, your body is almost impossible to retain any nutrients that you're putting in your body. And so in order to uh, stop that from happening, you have to repair your gut first. And also obviously it increases the ability to make serotonin, which is very important for happiness. So mm. yeah. Mm. It, it's fascinating that, you know, the number of investigations that we have available to us could provide at least some direction for, for people. Is there a foundation prior to having the need for investigations that you think most people would benefit from? So, I mean, first thing is trying to address the beige diet. And just from anecdote, I get told that all the time by parents of ADHD, kids and autistic children as well. They are picky eaters. They won't eat. I remember vividly actually, I was in uh, a &E in the pediatric department in a Barnet hospital I was working in at the time. And the it, the kid came in for something different, six year old, but the father, poor father, he had to he he literally had to keep on feeding this child pizza oh to stop him from yeah. going up the walls and stuff. And that was he was like, it's the only thing he will eat. It's yeah. just this pizza, no vegetables on it, not even the tomato sauce, just like the base. That's literally all you would eat. And so this is something it's I, a I vicious I, cycle. It really is. What it they're really doing is. is it kind of pacifies them momentarily which is only going to be a transient um, experience because then it's putting all that junk back into the gut, which is then going to create the mood disturbance. And then they're pacified again with the junk food. And then we go round and round. It's almost like the, um, the cycle of addiction, which is, you know, binge, withdraw, repeat, binge, withdraw, repeat. It's the same with foods. You know, this is what people are doing. We can become addicted to certain foods. And the work of Professor Robert Lustig has shown you know, and provided evidence to support the notion that sugar is addictive because it activates the same reward circuitry in the brain as some, you know, class A drugs. So, you know, junk foods and processed foods and, um, you know, it's no secret that some of these food giants have recruited some of the top scientists that have put together this, you know, very clever chemical concoction of chemicals that keep us coming back for more it's very clever like I, I always say to the children I work with I'm like hey take that Dorito dip it in water now mm. put it in your mouth what does it taste like and yeah. yes they spit it right back out because it yeah. tastes of cardboard it tastes disgusting because yeah. you've washed the chemicals off yeah, yeah. it's it, as simple as that it's really interesting actually because uh I remember I was listening to a lecture during my master's program and they were talking about how I think it's the Cheeto has <laughs> yes. is like the perfect food when it comes to just maintaining right salt, sugar, and savory. That's yeah, what it is. And the texture you as well. You could coat it in it, dog poop. Yeah. You're like, seriously, and people would eat it, go, mm, this yeah. is so nice. Yeah, it's so interesting because it, it kind of melts away and it gives you the 
thought process of you haven't eaten anything yeah and it's it's really it, it's like a brain trickery yeah. almost it's yeah it's fascinating but all that. of those foods you know literally the habitual consumption of junk processed refined foods um you know do increase risk for metabolic syndrome i mean you know all about that as a medical doctor and all sorts of complications and you know the world health organization say by and large most most of the premature development of these non-communicable diseases such as stroke obesity type 2 diabetes can be prevented mm. via the diet mm. it's that simple but but the the, the question i think i get all, mm. all the time from yeah. parents is all right that's far i know that yes i'm educated i've read all the books yeah. how on a, where do i start this yes. kid is going up the walls and yeah. you know it's it's breaking up my my relationship it's breaking up my relationship yes. with my other children it's just yeah. up to other kids you know i feel like a bad yeah. parent like, how do you how do you even get started and then the parent becomes depressed 100 you know, yeah. and anxious and then start self-medicating with alcohol, you know, like mm. at four o'clock as soon as they've done the school run. Oh my yeah. God, where's yeah. the wine? Like, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, I mean, that is so, so common. Absolutely. Well, uh, what's the strategy? Yeah. The, what, what are oh, the yeah. strategies so what do we do to about try? It? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, because I've lived that experience, um, I've, I've just, I decided to write a book all about it. So I have this wonderful book coming out in uh, February the 18th next year. I hope you won't mind me giving it a bit of a plug, but it's uh, Smart Foods for ADHD and Brain Health. And it's being published by Jessica Kingsley Publishers. And it literally is a guide for parents it kind of takes them by the hand because i wish someone had taken me by the hand all those years ago and some people did you know there were a lot of people that did help and i'm forever grateful but if i had had a manual like or a book that i could just go oh yeah yeah i totally get that and you know within the book of recipes how to change your diet nutrition plans like you know, teaches you all about the brain, the neuroanatomy of the brain, all the clinical research out there. And it literally is kind of my give back, you know, because it's like, what's the point of me accumulating 14 years worth of knowledge if I can't give it back? That would be an utter disservice and waste of my time. And for me, advocate advocacy is so so important it's not about what you know it's about spreading that message and helping other parents in the process and and letting them feel that they're not alone you know special children are given to special parents like literally I subscribe to that because having my son transformed my life um and you know I wouldn't be doing what I do now without him so literally yeah and as i said to you earlier his name means gift from god and i truly you know subscribe to that like um he's changed my life and now i'm helping to do you know play a small role in in helping other parents know they're not alone and give them some knowledge which helped me um in the hope that together we can create change mm. one of the things that i tell parents is um well, first of all, uh, try and connect them with a community of other parents um, that that can reason with them to understand them. Because it's very hard for me, as someone who doesn't have a kid, um, to try and just say, "Well, just do this," and then you know, "Or this is what you need to do," because their gut is ravaged, etc. So my strategy is obviously just to try one thing at a time and to continue to come back to different foods, because, as you know, uh, and as a lot of parents will know. 
your taste buds will evolve during that infancy period. And so just because they don't like something now doesn't mean they won't like it at Absolutely. some point in the future. But it's that perseverance that's so hard to conjure, Juicing is one of my main recommendations. If you can juice, because then that's also an opportune moment to slip <laughs> to slip and hide supplements, you know, that are beneficial. Mm. Um and you know find out what fruits and vegetables your child does like mm -hmm. and make a blended juice you know it should be a 60 to 40 percent ratio in terms of vegetables and fruit but even if they just like berries wonderful you know they're full of antioxidants and polyphenols and you know get you know get all those blueberries and raspberries and strawberries blended and then you know sneak some spinach in they're not going to notice or some beetroot or carrot you know um so there are clever ways and i do discuss um, all of this in my book but you touched on something earlier and it's really important having a community you know so you don't feel alone and, and not supported and that's critical I do a lot of outreach community events for anyone who has any experience of any neurodevelopmental difference or mental health condition we did have one booked for October called MEND which is men's exercise and nutrition development. But unfortunately, due to the current climate, we've, we're going to have to postpone it until next year. But yeah, Nutritious Minds, you know, does a range of kind of outreach work in advocating for nutrition and exercise because they both work together. Um, you know, really, they work in synergy to optimize brain function. So you should always try and at least exercise as well as having the nutrition and it helped my son a lot you know he did athletics boxing like gymnastics trampolining you name it like I we were always active that yeah. was the only way to kind of you know get him to sleep at night absolutely <laughs> wear <Okay>. him out <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah with the um with some of the things that we discussed um with food and, and sugar addictive behaviors um leaky gut syndrome or um intestinal hyperplasia as it's described in the academic literature these sorts of topics attract a lot of controversy within the dietetic and nutrition world. Yeah. What kind of um, sort of kickbacks have you, if you've had, if any, uh, against some, perhaps some of your colleagues along the way and, and, and why isn't there sort of uniform thinking on this and where does that controversy lie? I think it's the seriousness of it, if you like, um, are we taking this seriously? And if not, why not? And I think it stems from a lack of understanding and knowledge, literally. Because when I go into, you know, um, various sort of academic institutions or even schools or even coffee mornings, you know, to speak to parents, like once I finish my talk, you know, everyone's like, wow, this is so interesting. Like, I wish I'd known this and I had no idea the brain was made of fat. And, you know, so people are hungry for this knowledge. And I think it's literally just, if we can share, make knowledge more accessible and share it and not just within our little pockets of academia or, you know, we need to get out onto social media or have our websites and literally just spread the message because a lot of this research you know it gets published and then it's on PubMed and you know the clinical database of all the published research all over the world but a parent's not going to know about PubMed how do you find PubMed you know um there are kickbacks from all sorts of people I mean like I told you earlier when my son turned 18 and he'd had chronic ADHD all his life and I took him to um, an NHS psychiatrist and I was like look can, can you assess him for adult ADHD because in 65% of all cases 
you know, child ADHD persists into adulthood. And he literally closed the door and was like, there's no such thing. Adult ADHD doesn't exist, you know, go away effectively. So it's, it's really important. And even to this day, um, ADHD has negative connotations. Like people think it's some funny made up label for naughty schoolboys. But I've actually done the history, like I've dedicated like half a chapter of um, in my book because I wanted to show that there have been various versions of what we now know as ADHD that date back right back to Sir Alexander Crichton in 1854 and his book on attention and, and its diseases. And then again in 1902, you know, England's first professor of childhood medicine, uh, Dr. George Still, you know, again, cites it. And then sometime later, and we, you know, it's called all sorts of different things, but there are, you know, this can be traced back in the Lancet, you know, it's not some invention of the pharmaceutical industry, it's genetic predominantly, but there are many environmental components. And it's really critical that we, you know, I understand that being skeptical is important, but when you're trying to educate someone about the importance of you know, a healthy diet and how it may improve mental health, um, to have sort of doors shut on that message is is really disheartening. And it, we know that people following a Mediterranean diet, it increases longevity. These people live longer. Yeah. They're less likely to have a heart attack and they're less likely to be depressed. But hey, what do I know, you yeah. know? Yeah. So it is tough, it really is tough. I mean, you know, you're pushing fruit and vegetables and, and you can get you into trouble. It's like, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, 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 it's interesting because like, you know, the the pushback that I personally had is um, you give people false hope. Yeah. Um, you know they'll try these things and they'll uh, enter into a vicious cycle of shame. The fact yeah. that they can't achieve that yeah. or they can't afford it, yes. or, or you know there are a whole bunch of other reasons. I completely get that. Yeah. I mean, working in the NHS in uh, any area in any city, London, you're going to see a full spectrum of people from different backgrounds, yeah. both educationally totally. and financially. Yeah. So I totally get that, but I think we need to be a bit more aspirational in the choices that we give people yes. and actually give them the opportunity yeah. to do that. Because I think any parent, if they had the capacity to, yeah. in the same way you did, you gave up a lucrative career yeah. to follow something a, has become your passion but essentially it's an academic career yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i've never been so poor seriously <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, you don't go into science for the money because you're totally. never going to get it you know yeah. at the end of the day um it's like living a student life for the rest of your life yeah it's yeah. tough um so the skeptics of you know what you might be suggesting in terms of you know improve yeah. your gut health improve fruit yeah. and vegetable get more diversity yes in hydration yes use some supplementation yeah. as there is some evidence yeah. based on it so you know the pushback i feel comes from that angle um but i i, I don't know i i can i can kind of reason with both sides yeah. but i'm certainly more of the side of well give people the choice yes and always. the information and be yeah. pragmatic about it it's i not think like promising anything transferring the knowledge is important and then it's up to the individual what they want to do with that knowledge yeah. you know it's like you can take a horse to water but you can't make it drink you know it's like your gp saying you need to give up smoking or you need to cut back on alcohol it's like people will ultimately do what serves them but i think at least if you have the knowledge then 
And if you're suffering, and most people don't want to live in pain, and if they are suffering, and say pharmaceuticals haven't worked for them, potentially, then what do you do with those children? Because that's, you know, in terms of what we spoke about earlier, the first line of treatment is Ritalin or something like that, you know, psychostimulant. But, you know, there is, basically, if you look at the statistics, there are two thirds that will respond to that medication, but there are a third that won't. They'll have to discontinue either because the side effects are too severe or they're non-responders. So not everyone is going to respond positively. So my son was one of the non-responders. We did try it. You know, as a parent, you'll try anything. You want it to work, you know? Um, but if it doesn't work, what do you do? And for me, thankfully, that whole nutritional kind of exercise, you know, holistic door and route opened up to me. And I think that people are wanting alternatives now or they're wanting additionals. So I think in many cases, we have to move beyond the prescription pad if we can of course some medication is critical and life-saving and and it, you know there's no other options and you know but I'm talking to people who are not you know being who who basically may have just have de mild depression or they may have ADHD or something like that and they want to see what else is available to them and I think it's important that we um share that they're that leading a healthy lifestyle and having a kind of personalized, integrative approach to healing is important for me. So I think it's never just one thing, you know, it's always a combination of many things together that can help um, improve a mental health condition, for example. So whether that's mindfulness uh, meditation with, you know, some sort of talking therapy with, nutrition with some type of exercise and if a, a medication helps as well then yes the whole the, the holistic approach it's just my personal approach is non-pharmacological and that's my personal choice yeah yeah, yeah totally to we're, mild we're, mental health conditions yeah yeah, yeah. with them um, adult adhd in particular you touched on it before but i wanted to to um hammer the point about the associations between adults who live with ADHD, many of which are probably undiagnosed actually, quite yes. frankly, and uh, the implications on addictive behavior, alcoholism, um, self-medicating behavior, as well as um, depression, traumatic relationships, etc. Yeah. What do we know about how lifestyle interventions uh, can help ameliorate those? I mean, the first thing is recognizing it, I guess. Yeah. Um this is um, arguably the topic of my next book because it's a really, really under-researched area. Um, and that is the fact that oftentimes children with ADHD are educationally failed and then they face permanent exclusion and then they're placed potentially in what's called a pupil referral unit. And within pupil referral units, it increases risk towards the gravitation of a delinquent peer group, criminal gang related activity. And we now know through the work of Professor Susan Young that over 30% of all incarcerated adults have uh, undiagnosed ADHD. Um, so for example, it wasn't, the symptoms weren't correctly identified or diagnosed in childhood. And because of that impulsive, self-medicating aspect of ADHD 
with educational failure, you know, and also I noticed it in my own son, you know, his self-esteem was stripped away because every single day he was told off. Imagine that, you know, if you think about a child with a physical disability in a wheelchair, you wouldn't be saying stand up and walk. But with a child with an invisible mental health condition, they are constantly told, you know, sit still or shut up or stop moving or stop that or don't do that or you're this, you're that. And that's what they're exposed to. And um, it creates all sorts of problems. And so, yeah, so in terms of risk factors uh, in our adult ADHD community, um, there is, they are overrepresented in the prison system. And it's a real shame because it's like, which way is the pendulum going to swing? Because often these subtle differences in the wiring of the brain give rise to such creativity and, you know, gifts in, in a, for want of a better word, you know, the ability to hyper-focus, which is like the ability to shut out the outside world and focus intently and creatively on a project. Um, you know, there are people that are known to us like Sir Richard Branson, who has dyslexia and a bit of ADD um, style symptoms. And, you know, Steven Spielberg, who's completely dyslexic. And, you know, there are so many people out there who are role models, um, you know, Olympian gold medalists and entertainers and writers and actors and so on. You know, the list is endless of gifts that ADHD can bring. But the other side is the dark side of ADHD, which is not really spoken about. It's not really discussed, you know, um, and much more investment needs to go into this because the criminologist Adrian Rain, I don't know if you know, have you heard he wrote this book? I think it's called The Brain Anatomy of Violence or something like that. Yeah, he's a criminologist and he was kind of um, the first person to show structural uh, differences in the brains of incarcerated adults who are, for example, on death row. And he brought up that whole kind of notion of or uh, philosophical concept of free will because there were such differences in the, the way the brain had developed, arguably as, as a result of, you know, abuse and trauma and childhood and, you know, nutritional deprivation and all sorts of things, all sorts of contributing factors that had given rise to his notion of the criminal brain. And um, Adrian Rain decided to do a six month clinical trial supplementing children in the community with omega-3 and I believe a multivitamin. And um, what he found was significant reductions in something called the inventory of callous and unemotional traits which was developed by Paul Frick. And it's an indicator, a sizable, um, uh, yeah, sizable indicator for the risk of the development of pathology in children. So psychopathology in terms of um, conduct disorder, antisocial personality disorder, all of which can, you know, lead you very quickly to prison, basically. Um, so I think... What he found, sorry, just to go back to his clinical trial, what he found was, I think it was like something like, I can't remember the exact figures, so excuse me, but it was like 58% reduction in these ICU traits in children, as well as overall improvements in their behavior. So, and I, at my research at the Institute of Psychiatry, I also measured um, callous and unemotional traits in 
my cohort of children who had ADHD and comorbid conduct disorder. And um, what I found was that the lower the omega-3, the higher the callous and unemotional traits. So I found significant positive correlations and, um, you know, there were relationships between higher ICU traits and and lower DHA and EPA and total omega-3 as well. And then Adrian Rain's research was really exciting for me because it's like, hey, I found these kind of correlations. And of course, you know, correlations are just associations, that's all. But then he went a step further and actually supplemented them within a clinical trial context over a six month period and found reductions in their callous and unemotional traits. So there are potential things we can do is like identify risk factors, make potential, you know, nutritional changes you know maybe something like mentoring as well assigning a mentor to to a child who's at risk of um educational failure because if you can keep a child within education you're going to significantly reduce their risk of um developing a condition like conduct disorder or ending up in criminality because you know young people with adhd are highly impulsive you know it's almost like this kind of continuous conflict which happens in teenagers anyway between the limbic system which is the kind of oldest more primitive part of the brain which i refer to as the accelerator so it's the part of the brain that's like kind of like you know do this wouldn't that be exciting or you know sort of sensation thrill seeking novelty seeking like you know behaviors yeah um versus the frontal cortex which is the last part of the brain to develop it normally doesn't finish finish developing in a young adult till around the age of 23, which we've discovered through neuroimaging research. So during adolescence, you have this cognitive conflict between the limbic system and the frontal cortex going on, or the accelerator and the brakes, because of course the frontal cortex is the part of the brain that says, hey, wait, let's think about yeah. this. <laughs> you know, is this a good decision or not? Yeah. And But if you've got this like, you know, very, um active limbic system Uh, and in adhd imagine it's even worse because the frontal cortex is impaired you Mm. know like often the activity is is you know not functioning as it should so that can increase risk of all sorts of things like you know engaging in illegal substances or acting impulsively or getting into fights or teenage Mm. pregnancy which Mm. we know all of this can happen anyway. Um, So I think it's a really important um, area to look at risk factors. What can we do to, in terms of preventative research? Mm. Because prevention is key. And I think something like less than 2% of all research funds are allocated to preventative research here in the UK. And that's shocking because there's so much we can do in terms of, because no one wants their kid who's already got a neurodevelopmental difference to end up in jail when they could be the next Sir Richard Branson. Exactly. I mean, it's literally that, you it's, know? It's literally that. It, it, it reminds you of that talk that um, Sir Ken Robinson gave at TED. I mean, I must have watched it like 20 yes. times. <laughs> Squashing and, uh, creativity in mainstream yeah, schools. Honestly. And it's yeah. just like, you know, this child, because she had a chance interaction with a psychiatrist yeah. who recognized her innate talent. Yes you know, was prevented from a life of being scolded, medicated, and not allowed to reach her full potential. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an incredible uh, crossroads that so many children are experiencing to this day. And 
you know, the knowledge that nutrition and targeted supplementation can potentially help along with the suite of other uh, interventions like, you know, mentorship, I think is brilliant. Psychotherapy, again, community. These are all things that I think are super important. And um, yeah, no, it's fascinating. Are there any other supplements other than omega-3 that you think are worth an honorable mention uh, with regards to ADHD um, and nutrition strategies? Yes, I recommend that parents um, seek the help of a nutritionist or a dietitian, go and get a blood test and look at particular nutrients which we know play a role in um, our brains and our brain's function. Um, And if those nutrients are lacking, then you would want to supplement. But there are a range of uh, nutrients, especially the, the B vitamins, you know, as I said, zinc, magnesium, there's been some research on these that have shown to be uh, potentially beneficial to children with ADHD. Um, so yeah, but if we don't look, we're sort of like testing or we're, do, you know, we're supplementing when there's no need to supplement necessarily or, you know, so you do need to look at the blood, look at the data. Yeah, we need to be informed, I think, about all these things. I think a lot yeah. of people are just swimming in the dark yeah. with regards to particularly supplementation. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, it's uh, it's something that I've had experience of. And a lot of people ask me, you know, can you actually achieve adequate levels with diet alone? Um, I'd like to think we can, but I think in certain instances, I mean, I take a vitamin D3, omega-3 and uh, a B-complex myself. Yeah, that's um, great. I mean, now there's increasing research saying vitamin D is protective of uh, respiratory conditions, certain respiratory conditions or protective or beneficial or both. I'm not quite sure of the latest research, but there's suggestions of that. And especially with COVID around, like we want to build up our immune system and keep our, keep you know ourselves as healthy as possible i'm not opposed to supplements i always say change the diet first that's always like the nutrients are in the food and they work synergistically so you know if you're if you're juicing for example like using a nutri bullet or something like that all the fibers retained you know whereas if you're just getting a carton of juice you know and it's made from concentrate you're not getting all those vitamins and antioxidants that boost your brain Mm. um so yeah Brilliant. Thank you so much. Pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Brilliant. I really hope you enjoyed that podcast with Dr. Rachel. She is fantastic. I really enjoy the fact that she has both a non-profit and a consulting organization as well. If you do want to check those out, it is nutritiousminds.org. I can't wait for her book to come out in February 2021. I know that's going to be groundbreaking and I know it's going to help a number of people, particularly given how rife ADHD is in this country and beyond. Please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts and do check out the uh, newsletter that we launch every week, thedoctorskitchen.com. Do check it out and I will see you here next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.